This is Hitting the Mark, conversations with founders and investors about the intersection of brand clarity and startup success, with your host, brand strategist and author, Fabian Garhalter. Welcome to Hitting the Mark. We had so many founders on the show lately that it was definitely time to bring in an investor to once again hear from the other side of the table. And not just any investor. Today, we have the pleasure to pick the brain of a man who Inc. Magazine described as Pittsburgh's startup whisperer, taking credit for 500 companies, some 10,000 jobs, and $1 billion of investment capital. Today, we welcome the one and only Frank Demmler, who for over 30 years has been an investor, advisor, and educator in Pittsburgh's technology-based entrepreneurial community, which hardly existed when he first started, but has grown to be one of the most active and desirable entrepreneurship hubs today. Frank has also been an adjunct professor for entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon University for over 30 years. With that being said, welcome, Frank. Thank you, Fabian. Looking forward to it. I, do, I want to make one correction. I, I don't take credit for all of those things. The entrepreneurs who created the businesses and raised the money, they're the ones who did it. I just helped. I, I absolutely love that. Um, that, you know, that kind of already sums up the type of person that I, I, I believe you are. So I'm, I'm so excited to finally have you on the show. And let's, let's talk a little bit about those companies that you invested in. It's, it's, it's a pretty large number and it's hard to pick one or two brands to dive into today. But I was intrigued by two specifically, one of which he actually picked. So let's start with that one because it's a rather peculiar one. Um, automated healthcare, which deploys robots in hospital pharmacies and has been acquired by McKesson for $65 million. Okay, so if that did not get my listeners excited to have you on the show, I am not sure what would. Tell us a bit about automated healthcare, when and how you got involved, and how you saw it shape into a brand that was worth that amount of money. Yeah, uh, it was a situation where... uh I, I had worked with the founders of the company in a variety of capacities uh, as an advisor and educator. Uh, one of the co-founders was a former student of mine and uh, learned about, they had applied to an economic development organization in Pennsylvania called the Ben Franklin Technology Partnership. And uh, they had been rejected for their grant and I was adamantly uh, opposed to that decision. So I, I went and advocated on their behalf, and they were able to get, at that time, an $88,000 grant to purchase a robot so they could do the proof of concept of putting a robot in a hospital and having it be able to pick medications off a pegboard uh, with reliability. Uh, with that introduction and, and interaction, uh, when it came time for the company to raise money, uh, I, w I was a general partner of the Pittsburgh Seed Fund, and it was just a natural extension of what we've been doing that, to make the investment in the company and help it move forward. And how how do you feel that automated healthcare, like what 
what role did branding or, or, or like the idea of branding play for automated healthcare? Because obviously they're, they're a B2B robotics brand in the healthcare space. So it feels like really far removed, but, but it, it, it seems like it still played a role. Oh, very definitely. Uh, I, I hate to admit it, but the, the initial investment was in 1990. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if your listeners were even born then, but uh, <laughs> I think it's okay, Frank, because I said in you know over the last thirty years twice in my intro. So I kind of already gave away that there's a there's a huge amount of knowledge in you. Let's put it that way. So back in 1990, uh, the the healthcare system was undergoing major revolutions uh, that continue to this day. And uh, one area of particular uh, concern was that the error rate of, of, of medica medications leaving a hospital pharmacy and being delivered to a patient had an error rate between 1 and 10%, with an average of 1 to 3 quarter. Most of those errors were things like 100 milligrams of Tylenol instead of 15 or whatever, but uh, some of them could be fatal. And so this appeared to be a great opportunity for the application of robotic technology because, the, in fact, the, the process of picking those pills was repetitive and could be programmed in such a way that a robot could do it. And that would replace an army of uh, white frocked uh, young people roaming around the pharmacy doing hand picking, which mm -hmm. was the way it was done back there. So by saying automated healthcare, uh, it it positioned the company as one that was using advanced technology. Uh, it was resonating in an industry that was only beginning to appreciate that there, are, there were technologies that ultimately could be adopted by hospitals to improve patient care and improve financial performance. So it was really branding, branding a new, a new segment, like like disrupting with 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 a new definition of what uh, what a business can do within the healthcare space. Exactly, uh, it, it it literally revolutionized how hospitals would manage and distribute their drugs. Uh, one of the uh, one of the benefits of that is. Prior to automated healthcare, uh, the professional pharmacist played more a role of a grocery store checkout person who would review the medications once they'd been picked and try to make sure that they were the right thing for the right patient. And so you had a, a, a highly compensated professional who really wasn't able to do his or her uh, professional job of working with the patients, working with the nurses, but was sitting there uh, checking out uh, cassettes of pills. Well, and obviously, I think those are a lot of the jobs that are going to be replaced in the future, and, and a lot of people are afraid of that. But the way that you put it and the way that I see it, too, those are individuals that actually are not utilizing the full capacity of their intellect doing the work that they're currently doing. So it is actually a very positive, positive movement. And it seems, it seems to me that 
automated healthcare and 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 you know your your investment in them or your mentoring uh, them actually they they were pretty much on the forefront of what now is becoming a really widely discussed uh, topic. Let's move over to another brand that you helped shape over the years, Mott Cloth, which is a vintage-inspired clothing brand for young women, and they had quite a great founding story. Tell us how you got involved with them, and at what stage of the company's foundation did you step in? Were, were they students of yours? Yes. Uh, well, the, the male was a student, uh, and I have to correct what I said. You, the Koger is the last name, so... Uh, Susan and Eric Coger are the founders of Mod Cloth. Uh, they had been high school sweethearts. Uh, they came to Carnegie Mellon University as students and uh, got married somewhere along the line. And the, the thing was that Susan loved vintage clothing, so that whenever she and Eric were going to different towns, her first stop would be into the uh, consignment stores and other sources of uh, used or historical garments. And she would buy uh, probably a lot of stuff from, from those places. And it got to the point where their, their apartment was overflowing with her vintage clothing. And obviously she can't wear it all that often. And so ultimately, uh, they came up with the idea of let, let's sell Susan's uh, purchases uh, over the internet. And this is back in 2004, I believe. And so at that time, the internet uh, stores were beginning to, to uh, emerge on the internet. And so Eric, who was a joint computer science and business major, uh, designed the website and got them up and going. And uh, lo and behold, the, the reaction to Su Susan's uh, inventory was very positive, very strong. And so Susan uh, came up with the concept of finding young designers who designed with vintage-inspired uh, uh, concepts applied. And so she would... Uh, they, they borrowed, I believe, on the order of $50,000 from an uncle, like in October of 2004, so they could buy some inventory and get the designs made. And again, lo and behold, uh, the designs are being uh, gobbled up as soon as they, they hit the website. And uh, they actually use that to their advantage during the very earliest stages in that because cash was tight, uh, she would put, she would order whatever clothing she could based upon financial ability, put it on the site, and typically within one to three hours, the inventory would sell out. That then caused the fans of the site to log in multiple times a day in order to not miss uh, a new item coming on. And so that was probably one of the first uh, social marketing uh, tactics that I had seen that had been successful. Uh, that success got them into uh, low six digits sales, slightly more than $100,000, which wasn't chump change at that time either. Right. Uh, but by the same token, 
uh, because of the customer adoption and because of the brand that they had created and branded Susan Cogger as a uh, thought leader or probably today would be called an influencer, uh, she and the designs and the product line all became uh, a, a, a brand and a product and a lifestyle uh, that distinguished it from other such clothing providers. And that got the attention of a number of uh, very high profile angel investors, uh, uh, Jeff Floor from uh, StubHub, uh, Mike Maples, Josh Koppelman, among others. And so they put in a, 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 a super angel round, I guess it would be called. And uh, that's what allowed the company to transition from a two person uh, selling out of their uh, apartment into a, a company. That success then led to uh, institutional investors. And over time, the brand grew from zero to uh, over $150 million of uh, annual revenues. And uh, ultimately, it was acquired by Jet.com, which itself had been acquired by Walmart, because Walmart wanted to create some branded strategies rather than being viewed as a commodity slash low price cheap provider. And so uh, that was sort of the cycle of the business. It still exists as an independent brand. You can find it on the internet. Uh, but that that's sort of the history. What a fascinating story. I mean, so there's 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 a woman in college and she buys too much vintage clothing and at some at some point the boyfriend says, "Look, let's start selling that and instead of using eBay, let me just create a website where we can sell your stuff." And that's, you know, that went from an $18,000 in income to $15 million in income in only four years. And I mean, those stories are amazing. And today, if you go to the Mott Cloth uh, website, it has Halsey and Aquafina as models. And, you know, and, and obviously it was just acquired by Walmart uh, at the same time that, uh, I guess, Bonobos was acquired by Walmart. So obviously to, to, to boost the Walmart brand for a younger audience. But it's such a success story. And I, I believe that one of the big pieces to to that brand success, and you hinted at it with, with within your within your um, you know story about the brand, is is crowdsourcing because Mutcloth actually became the first retailer um, I read to supplement an existing business model with crowdsourcing efforts. So um, you know as you as you mentioned, Susan started that uh, I guess she called it the Be the Buyer program, where she would gather designs, post them on the site, soliciting customers to vote for which design to produce, which then, of course, created a huge buzz and made the customer feel like they had a voice. But in turn, they pretty much pre-sold products almost instantaneously. And I guess that genius move in crowdsourcing actually must have come out of a complete necessity at the time for her, because she just had to, she just had to do it this way in order to sustain. Yeah, I, I mean, she did uh, exactly as you said. They didn't have the cash flow that they could afford to invest in inventory and hope somebody bought it. So she was able to basically uh, create what were ultimately auctions of here are five designs that that we've identified. Which one 
would you buy among her, the users? They would vote, and lo and behold, whoever won, that would, would, would be purchased, and, and uh, the, the buyers were already predetermined, and so right. they would sell out pretty quickly. Right, exactly. And, and just to give our listeners some more insight into all the different ways that, that she actually, well, Motcloth as a brand, is actually using crowdsourcing, um, here, are, here are three of them that I want to share that I read about. The first one is Style Gallery, which is a user-generated image gallery where customers send in photos of themselves modeling in Motcloth, um, you know, designs. Um, and then, of course, you know, other people see how the clothing actually looks on real people. And then there's Fit For Me, which is a feature on the Motcloth app, which allows users to see suggestions for clothing that will fit their exact body shape based on other users' reviews. And then last but not least, and I think this is, is such a cool such a cool thought, um, they ran a contest in 2012 called Make the Cut. Um, and what they did is Motcloth created products based on consumer ideas. So suddenly the consumer became an artist and the contest winners had their you know drawings, their sketches of clothing adapted into real clothes for the spring line with each Make the Cut garment product then featuring the artist's name printed on the label. So you suddenly had your name on the back of a piece of clothing from a brand that you already loved. So obviously they they use some nifty brand strategies and they were also very in tune with the current zeitgeist because they were taking a stance on the topic of body image when it was rarely discussed in the media. So do you know with this particular startup um, investment of yours or, or nurturing of yours, mentoring of yours, when did the team actually started to actively invest time or money into brand strategy, voice or design? I think a lot of it came very, very organic. But at some point, they must have said, let's, let's hire an agency. Let's do this the real way. Do you know that transition or, or how a lot of these amazing brand thoughts came about with Motcloth? Uh As you noted, some of them were organic. For example, the one where, you, where people would take pictures of themselves in in outfits and share that. They'd also created a uh, discussion board where people would be able to explain that they're using uh, uh, a dress from one source and a, 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 a blouse from another and a scarf from another and a pair of shoes. And then people would talk about, hey, have you tried such and such? So it was really part and parcel of, of the company uh, once we had the super angels on board who did have consumer marketing uh, backgrounds, uh, they were able to help us in terms of identifying the right agencies. Uh, so that would have been, you know, two to three years into the company, but 12 to 18 months uh, after getting the super angel investment that, that they were able to uh, do a full professional shift into the crowdsourcing and customer engagement. When do you advise your companies typically to invest in branding? And, and does it vary by startup focus? Does it vary by B2B, B2C, you know, tech, you know, apps, etc.? As an investor, what I want to do is uh, mitigate risk. Right. And so for certainly with any B2C uh, company, 
uh, creating a brand that customers will resonate with is an essential part of that process. And if, if the company's vision, theme, culture, and brand aren't all aligned, uh, you end up in, with dissonance and uh, it, very poor customer pickup. So it really is essential that you, you put all of those things together on, on a branded basis in order to capture uh, the customers. So absolutely, with with B two C companies, you it sounds like you push them towards towards turning into that into that brand rather rather sooner than later. And with B two B companies, you must probably take a little bit of a of, of of a stance back. Yeah, and I mean, for example, automated healthcare uh, made great use of its brand, but the other the other technique that the founders did was among their first 10 customers were four of the of the past five presidents of the American Hospital Pharmacy Association. So not only did the brand get established, but it got established and linked to thought leaders within their industry. So you have everything sort of working in sync, reinforcing uh, each bit. Absolutely. How much, how much of your time do you spend mentoring? It seems like you pretty much dedicated yourself to helping entrepreneurs thrive. And often people hear the word investor and they immediately conjure up a stereotype, which is not always positive, right? But, but it can, in fact, be a very nurturing um, and, and extremely satisfying line of work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been doing this since 1984, and every day is a new challenge with uh, the opportunity to learn new technologies, to meet uh, people who have dreams and aspirations, and to be able to help those people uh, go from being a wannabe entrepreneur to, a, to an entrepreneur. And so, yeah, I, I spend my time very much on the early stage well over half of my time is more in the nurturing and working with the companies. And then when they get to a certain scale, uh, either the, the investment mechanism that I've got or I will help them uh, determine what investors might be appropriate to help them at what time. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, you've been doing this since 1984. Um, what is a big piece of brand advice that you can share with our founders as a takeaway from, from this podcast session? Well, you know, the, today, uh, the, the thought is customer discovery is the, the bellwether of being an entrepreneur. And uh, unlike when I first started this business where it might cost a half a million dollars to develop a software product, uh, you know, in today's world, it's twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars. So you actually do have the ability to go to customers and get their direct feedback on what it is you're trying to do. And as you do that, you listen to what your customers tell you, and quite often 
you'll find out that the business you thought you're in uh, isn't that at all, but what you're providing to the customers has a different uh, value. And once you've sort of hit on that, the core value of the, of the, the offering, uh, then branding that and using that as a way to create identity and, and growth is, is essential. In the end, it is about empathy with your customer, right? Really, really putting yourself into their shoes and listening to them and understanding what they actually ache for despite what you offer. And then, and then moving, your, moving your product more into, into their sphere. Exactly. Thank you, Frank. I, I think it took us a, quite a bit of back and forth to finally make this happen, but I'm so grateful that you were able to take this 20 minutes of your time from your many duties as the startup whisperer to educate my listeners. I really appreciate it. Happy to do it, Fabian. Uh, feel free to call me in the future if you'd like. Absolutely. And, and thank you all for listening. Please Take a few seconds right now to hit that subscribe button and give the show a quick rating. It is the only currency I take from you in return for putting together the show every two weeks from finding interesting guests like Frank to getting them booked, prepping, recording and doing the post. It is definitely a time consuming labor of love. This podcast is brought to you by Finian, a brand consultancy creating strategic verbal and visual brand clarity. You can learn more about Finian, which I also happen to run and explore my books on brand building at Finian. Com. The Hitting the Mark theme music was written and produced by Happiness One. I will see you next time when we once again will be hitting the mark. <laughs>